1: The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. The Sugars are here, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Steve Allman. I'm Cheryl Strayed. This is Dear
0: Sugars. Oh, dear soul, won't you please
2: Share some little sweetness with me.
1: Hi, Steve. Hi, Cheryl. So back in February of 2010, a momentous thing happened. You sent me an email. I hardly knew you then. I think that a lot of our our listeners think that we knew each other well, but actually we were acquaintances. We had met at a conference and you sent me an email making a confession. Mm -hmm. You said, I am the person who writes the Dear Sugar column on this website called The Rumpus. It needs... Some, some new life, and I think you are the person to do it. Mm-hmm. Would you do it? And you, you also told me it paid nothing. I, at the time, had just finished the first draft of my memoir, Wild, and sent it off to my editor. Uh, I had two little kids who were like four and five. Mm-hmm. I was busy. I was trying to earn a living as a writer, which is, as you know, a very difficult thing to do. And so, there was absolutely no reason in the world that I should take on uh, the work of an advice column that paid nothing and didn't really have much in the way of a readership. <laughs> for an or, you know, website, and, exactly. And um, for whatever reason, I said yes.
0: But I did have, just for full disclosure, I knew that nestled within a reasonable refusal of that request was my secret knowledge that you had actually been the only person in the entire world and the entire universe who had written Dear Sugar, that is me a fan letter. (laughs) And I knew that my version of the column, which was imitating a sort of woman of a certain age who's been around the block and is sort of, you know, empathic but no nonsense, I was playing a character as a persona. And I tried, and I think there were some, you know, interesting moments. But I sort of had this sense of like, no, 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 there's a real thing, a vision that I had. I can't do it, but I think I know somebody who can. And I think, and I've always thought this, Cheryl, that the reason that you sent me that fan letter, just letter of admiration, was because there was a part of you that got what the column could be. And that's Mm -hmm. why I asked you, even though it was a ridiculous thing to ask, and I sometimes even feel guilty, like, what did I get her into? But I knew that you were the person (laughs) to do it.
1: You know it's funny I I sent you that that fan letter uh because I was a fan and I didn't know it was you I mean I was like, okay, this, this anonymous person, and, and I admire his or her writing, and I wanted to tell you that, that I that I loved it. And I was also annoyed that you so seldom wrote a column. You know, I was like, I was trying to encourage you to be <laughs> right. more regular because I needed my Dear Sugar. I was, a, I was a Dear Sugar fan before I was sugar. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. So you asked me. Uh, I talked to my husband about it. I talked to my writer's group about it. Uh, the universal uh, decision was that I should say no, of because course. why would I say yes? Right. But, you know, what, what's what's cool for me to really think about, this has been a kind of guiding light to me when it comes to other decisions I've made in my life, is that, you know, I said yes because I wanted to. I felt sparked by the idea. And so much of the advice that I came to give in the Dear Sugar uh, column uh, that I w- wrote for the Rumpus that, and and also here on this podcast is, is about listening to the body. When something lights you up, that means it's a good thing. When something when something makes you feel bad, it's a bad thing. I mean, mm-hmm. listening to the body is is really um, you know one of the wisest things I've ever learned to do. And and I was listening to to that truth when I took the chance on yes.
0: So the beautiful thing that, Cheryl, you're setting out here is what I think of as kind of a lot of people's creed is that there's this incredible power to saying yes. It opens up avenues. It allows us to be braver than we thought we could be and so forth. It's really saying yes to the world. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And here's the crazy thing. It's also profoundly dangerous. And one of the things that we found in the course of receiving, you know, hundreds and hundreds of letters, thousands of letters, is that people struggle so powerfully to overcome this myth and to recognize that while there's incredible power in saying yes, as you prove every day, there's also real and necessary power to saying
1: no. For me, there's kind of two branches of no in my life. Mm -hmm. One is the bigger, deeper no that's connected to setting boundaries. Uh, you know, saying no to a toxic relationship yeah. or saying no to an abusive person in your life. And listeners know that I, I'm actually, I think frankly, fairly good at that that version of no, mm-hmm. um things like making the choice, you know, not to have any contact with my father, for example. um and then, and you know, really drawing that boundary, uh, it, it did take me some time to to get to that place and yeah. to realize that that was the best decision um in an unfortunate circumstance. But once I made it, you know, it felt healthy and it's been nothing but good in my life. And I would say I'm pretty good at the the kind of deep deep boundary now mm-hmm. the the other branch of no that I'm. Really bad at, or I'm i I'm am in a learning journey um, about it's just those those things of like say no to people who are asking you to do things for them or uh, favors those sorts of no's uh, are a lot more complicated. So today we're going to talk about how to say no, why to say no, when to say no, who to say no to, mm-hmm. and um, you know what what happens in the in the wake of that no. So we're going to explore that from many angles. So, Steve, why don't we get to the first letter?
0: Dear Sugars, I am a young female writer working a relatively powerful job in publishing, teaching on the side, and at the same time trying to finish my own book. I'm so lucky to be where I am, and while plenty of it is thanks to my own hard work— Plenty of it is also thanks to the mentors and teachers who helped open doors for me, who took my ambition seriously and knew firsthand the subtle and insidious ways being a woman would be counted against me and did what they could to help me rise regardless. Even if I hadn't had these kinds of mentors, I would feel a moral obligation to support the women around me and help them rise too. Now I'm at last in a position where I can really do this, but the demands on me to do so feel relentless, exhausting, and thankless. I feel like the more I help the people around me rise, the more and more I get diminished and ground down. I get asked to do four to five informational interviews a month, to read people's work for free, and donate my own writing, to write dozens upon dozens of recommendation letters. My male colleagues get asked for the same to some degree, but not with the same relentlessness, and they don't seem to have the same problem saying no. Often, if I'm not the one to, say, recommend an intern or take her out for lunch to talk about jobs, it simply won't happen. And so, I say yes to nearly all of it, and I hate it. I haven't really written in almost a year. I genuinely want to help, particularly when the requests come from younger women, and if time and energy were infinite, I would be glad to do all these things. But they're not, and I'm miserable Add to this a work culture where the few women on the staff do the vast majority of the work with the least credit and the least pay, where in spite of all the fight I've put into getting where I am, I'm still not taken seriously and I'm left feeling beat. Sugars, how do I keep from burning out How do I help support the women around me without losing track of my own work? And how do we even begin to shift this whole culture so that we stop being appalled when women say no, but rather give them the space to really say yes? I love that. To really say yes. Thanks. The door is open, but I'm still knocking.
1: Yes. Well, I, you know. I basically could have written a version of this exact right. letter. The door is open. I am with you. I also really want to support women writers, and I do. This is maybe a piece of advice that I can give you is to, to, to first of all say that you you are helping your colleagues, right? You are helping those interns and those younger women who are coming up just behind you, and that there's a limit to the number of them that you can help. And that's been actually useful to me, to say, I'm not going to stop um, you know, fill in the blank, writing recommendations, you know, having a, can I pick your brain meetings. I'm not going to stop that entirely, though I do. I have gone through periods where I've said, OK, I'm just taking a break. Right. I'm not going to do this for this many months. OK, I think that's one approach. But you could also set a limit. I think the deeper thing for me and probably for you, too, is to you need to come to terms with this sense of of shame and apology you have about actually having needs of your own right you know um, you don't need to 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 say i'm really sorry but i would like to be a writer too i would like to preserve some time to write like to, that, that, that you can't feel apologetic about those things that are some of the most important things in your own life
0: i think that's just right and okay you get asked to write dozens upon dozens of recommendations Just say yes to the people who earned A's in your class, period, and just say, that's my policy, no hard feelings, if you want a recommendation, I have to give it in a full-hearted way, done. Uh, You know, you have to set up boundaries around your time, but what's really striking, the door is open in this note, is I haven't really written in almost a year. If you really want to set a good example for younger women, or just women in general, do it by doing your work and putting your work at the top of the list of things that you need to get done each day because that's the example they need to see.
1: Yeah, I think that's really insightful, Steve, this idea of modeling, you know, not just the success, the doors open that you have achieved. You know, they see they see this success in you and want to be like you. So they want to talk to you and have these informational meetings. But but modeling also you know, how do you continue to have success is that you have to set boundaries. and And, you know, saying no is a boundary. You know, some people are going to be offended by that no, but but some people will be inspired by it. They'll say, "You know what? I, I get it. I have said this time and time again, so much of what I think of as good and positive and powerful and meaningful in my life came about because I said, yes, 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 I want to help other people. I'm naturally a helper. Right. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's actually one of my most positive traits, actually. Right. And I value that in other people and I value it in myself. But what I've come to realize is that if I don't learn how to disappoint people by saying no to them, I myself will be devoured. And, and that is the circumstance I found myself in. I finally am learning because I had to. I, I had to learn how to not be the people pleaser, not the person who says yes to everyone.
0: But it's hard in practice. And I know that, Cheryl, because I and your wonderful husband, Brian, staged a little pre-intervention. As you'll recall, more than five years ago, after we had both read The Galleys to Wilde, We knew that the book was really phenomenal and that it would resonate and become huge. And you were struggling, even then, as a pretty established writer, but not yet a world-famous writer, with requests on your time and energy. And it was getting you in a tangle. And we were like, Cheryl, it's coming. A wave of requests is coming. And you have to start building up your ability to be able to say no, otherwise you're going to get crushed by it.
1: Yeah. Well, and everyone... Who knows me? I mean, anyone I should say, everyone who loves me right. has has talked to me about this no thing yeah. um, in the same way you and Brian did uh, at different points along the way. You have to be OK with saying no. And and I appreciate that kind of uh, intervention and support. But I will say that is that's the other thing I learned about this no business. You know, I love saying yes, in part, I realized, because that's how I've been so successful at getting love. Yeah, like not just successful in in my career, at getting love, at people saying, "Oh, she's so great," and I realized I had to let go of this idea of myself, of as somebody who's like, "Oh, everyone's going to love because you please them." Right, it, it,
0: it really part of the dynamic that we're going to explore is really, it's a power relationship. And in those moments when when people ask us for something, for a favor, for love, for, uh, you know, whatever it is, they're really um, coming on bended knee. And when we say, yes, we can pretend that power dynamic doesn't exist and or at least it's been resolved in a way that feels like, oh, yes, you know, this this person's wonderful and generous and uh, they get a good feeling about themselves in exchange for my getting the thing that I really needed from them. But when you say no, that power dynamic becomes laid bare in a negative way. Well, who does he or she think they are? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's it, it, there's there's no getting around the fact that when you make a request, you're subservient, and a no is the thing that turns that subservience, curdles it into resentment oftentimes, and you're powerless. You can try to be polite about it, but it's still a no, mm-hmm. and some of what our letter writers are struggling with is that basic exposure of that power dynamic, or in the case of, I just want to read a little bit from a woman who identified herself as Yes Girl. And this is really, I think, very um, typical of the kinds of letters we got when you put out a call to say, hey, do you have, do you struggle with saying no, you know, we'll let us know your experiences, and Yes Girl wrote this, it's pretty amazing. I wonder how my life would have been different if I could say no. I'm sure some of this issue stems from my mom. She's self-reflective. She also never says no. I remember crying in various instances because she had said yes to things she actually couldn't do or accomplish. It was a source of tension for my parents. I now see that I am the same way. I have agreed to weddings of acquaintances that took place much too far away. On a weekend I knew I had to work and then agreeing to room with someone, then canceling the day of. I have agreed to walks, drinks, social gatherings, knowing full well that I had another commitment or felt too shy or introverted to go or actually not really wanting to go which is hard to admit most of these instances end up with me lying normally very elaborate lies as to why i can no longer attend and she goes on and on with various examples and you realize she describes it as a form of torture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, okay, maybe it seems like, oh, it's just a wedding or a small thing, but actually to many people, just being able to defend your boundaries of selfhood and what you want to do versus what you don't want to do or obligations becomes a kind of instrument of self-torture. It's not a little thing in people's lives. And, you know, I, I think it's gendered as well. Um, you know, it's not that, uh, it's not that men just automatically all men can say no more easily but it's there's there's not just wanting to please there's also in our culture being expected to nurture yeah. and I, I, I think that the burden on women when they get a request is just the natural assumption is that they're going to say yes because again this is incredibly generalizing but i think it's it's true in a in a in a sort of for the majority of situations we sort of look to mom And the mom figures, the powerful female figures, as the people who say yes and nurture and take care and put others' needs before their own.
1: No question about that. I mean, you know, I know Brian struggles to say no, too, but I I think you're absolutely right. And there's also just a narrower band we get to move in when it comes to um, what's considered selfish. Right, you signed your letter. The door is is open, but you know you you need to shut the door so that you can do that work right behind it, behind the protection of that that barrier, that boundary between you and all of the people who would rather uh, you know get something from you right um, than wait for that next thing that you have to give. Yeah. So we wish you luck. Close that door. Close that door and get writing.
0: So let's shift to that family no, we could call it. The
1: family no. That deeper boundary setting no. Dear Sugars, I'm bad at saying no. I'm a people pleaser and a perfectionist, but I'm on the road to recovery. Almost exactly a year ago, the universe broke the dam and the no's came pouring out of me. It was the dawn of a new era, the me era, both for the better and the worse. My closest relationships haven't been the same since. I know in my heart that the better outweighs the worse, but what pains me are the relationships that didn't survive, and they are mainly my family relationships, the ones we assume are unconditional. I come from a family of five, mom, dad, oldest daughter, me, second daughter, one year younger than me, and our brother, four years after that. My dad is an immigrant, strict, tyrannical, and now a painfully distant courtesy call on holidays and birthdays. My mom is a former artist who would always ride the highs and lows of life with abandon. The three of us kids became relatively close, and we were very close to our mom, united against our common enemy, my dad. In high school, I found out my mom had been suffering from depression for some time. I tried desperately to keep the family together, and also to keep her alive after two suicide attempts. I found myself supporting my siblings emotionally and eventually financially. I've always been the responsible one, and I can admit I liked being able to help. But I was gradually handing over my life as the burden grew. So one year ago, I started living my life. I said no to a romantic relationship that was holding both of us back for the greater part of seven years. I said no to funding my brother in school when he wasn't even going to class. I said no to my sister, who wasn't keeping track of how many loans she had taken from me and was using them to travel the world for fun, knowing she'd need to ask for more money later. It isn't the money that upsets me. It's the assumption that I was the safety net, no questions asked. I even got attitude a few times when I mustered the courage to express my concerns. Most painful of all, I said no to my mom. I said no to my mom who loved us all so much, who wanted us to be safe and happy and who blamed herself for our struggles because of her own and the unhappy marriage in which she chose to remain. I couldn't be a dumping ground for pain and despair anymore. Within a week, each one of them cut me off. I lost the three people I loved most in the world in one fell swoop, all because I stood up for myself. I went through all the stages a victim of ghosting does. I thought it was a mistake. I panicked that something had gone terribly wrong. I started to see the truth. I got angry. I got sad. And finally, I started to heal. The one brilliant bright light that I've gotten from all of this is that I'm finally, finally living my life. As you can see, Sugars, I'm slowly building my no muscles. My question isn't how to say no, but rather how to deal with the aftermath. I'm grateful that my sister and I have begun to rebuild our relationship based on an open communication and a more balanced give and take. The others are still mostly MIA. I struggle with the guilt associated with the consequences of saying no. Would my brother have had a better chance of securing a full-time job and gaining independence if I had funded his unpaid internship stint away from home for a few months? I've only gotten a cryptic two- or three-word text reply from my mom. In the past year, she's only spoken with me on the phone once on Christmas Day when she said things were not going well in a mic drop kind of way and left it at that. I know she's not in a good place, and I'm not the only one she's cut out. How do I support her while using no to build healthy boundaries? I feel guilty that I feel happier and healthier now while she's not in my life. I'm also deeply saddened that we're not sharing the beauty of our lives with each other, both the good and the bad. I think she would be proud of who I've become. I don't want to wait until time has run out to realize my regret for not having tried hard enough to show her that I love her and to tell her that the silence hurts. What do I do now that the storm has cleared? Signed, Ghost of no. Mm.
0: I love that that we found this letter because I think it speaks so deeply to not just saying no in that deeper way to family, but the aftermath.
1: Here's another letter, Steve, that I really relate to. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have talked on the show before about saying no to my biological father and and i have to say that that didn't feel like such a huge loss to me because um he wasn't in my life and he, you know he would only swoop in in a sort of abusive manner every decade or so and uh, it was, you know, it was hard. I mean, I think that Ghost of No, I relate to you. Um, it was the right decision. I know exactly that position you're talking about where it, when something, you know you've done the right thing because you can, you, you can feel it in the, in the, in the wake of that decision. Right. You can feel yourself being healthy and strong instead of weak and, uh, and cowed by, by mm-hmm. that kind of, you know, oh, I want to do what they want me to do fear. Right. Um, but the consequence of that is that you've cut something instead of mended it. right? Sometimes in order to mend your own heart, you actually have to cut a thread with somebody who means something to you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you made the absolute right decision. Already, you're seeing a healthier bond with your sister. I, I do think that that is going to be in the future with you and your brother and you and your mother. But I mean, we don't know. Right. And, and that's the part of life that, you know, when we're in relation with other people, they have to do their work too. Yeah. And and you know I think that that um that, that time will tell, but I, I the best advice I can give you ghost of No, is to keep making the right choices for yourself. And when you do that, people who are making the right choices for themselves can bond with you, can have relationships with you.
0: And that's why I think we're so incredibly super psyched amazed to be able to talk with somebody who has struggled with that, you know, has struggled with every form of saying no right. and and brilliantly. Uh, so, you know.
1: Let's talk to Oprah Winfrey. Let's talk to
0: Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> I'm a little freaked out even saying it. Let's now just, uh, just dial her up.
1: <laughs> well, and not only, you know, I think that Oprah will be, uh, have some interesting stories to tell us about, you know, how she has become honestly, the world's most famous woman over the course of, of her life um, and clearly gets all kinds of requests from all kinds of directions. But also, you know, as Oprah, as somebody who has really tapped into so many of the world's spiritual leaders, and she's going to be, you know, not only speaking from her own wisdom, but gosh, you know, she, she really is, um, has talked to so many people who have grappled with these sorts of things. Let's give her a call. Hello?
2: Hi, Chelsea, we have Oprah for you.
1: Great, thanks so much. Hi, Cheryl. How are you doing? I'm good. So I'm here with my co-host, Steve Almond. I don't think you've met. Hi,
0: Steve. I have heard of you. I hear of your work, <laughs>
1: okay <laughs> and and let me just quickly tell you how how this basically goes on our show is we we answer letters and we give people advice, and we tell our own stories about the the topic at hand and And today, as I mentioned to you, it's it's all about how to say no and why we should do it. Why should we should get good at doing it, even though sometimes especially among people pleasers. It's a challenge. And um, we've read these two letters, which I think um, were sent to you. Did you read both of these letters? Yeah, I read them. Great. So you and I have talked about this a bit, you know, some of the great advice you've given me in the time since we've known each other these five years. You know, I've said to you, how do I say no? How do you say no?
2: I most related to uh, what, what is the young lady's name whose family has now ditched her because yeah. she's the, ghost the of, Yeah, Ghost of No. The Ghost of No, yeah. How did you relate to her? I related because, I, I, first of all, there is always this innate fear that if I say no, I'm going to be rejected. That is the fear. The fear is if I say no, I'm going to somehow be discarded or dismissed or unloved but usually by the time it actually does happen any anybody anything you say no to and the person then turns against you or turns on you because of it you recognize that those that wasn't real love anyway because true love true friendship true support are comes from people who want you to be your own truth, to tell your own truth. They don't, they, they don't want things given to them that don't come from a pure place. They don't want to be perceived as taking advantage of you. They don't want that. So it means that ultimately you have to let go of some of the toxicity in your life that was preventing you from being your, your your most true self in the first place. And uh, sometimes that's that's family members. Sometimes you need to divorce family members.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think anyone who's ever let go of a toxic relationship feels a tremendous amount of uh, lightness and relief after that relationship is, is gone, even if there's also sorrow um, that it had to end.
2: This has been one of the greatest lessons for me to learn here on the planet Earth. It took me a long time. You know, when I do Super Soul, one of the questions I always ask Steve, uh, since I've never interviewed Steve, uh, <laughs> it, one of the questions I ask her in Super Soul always is, what is the lesson it took you the longest to learn? This one is it for me. Mm-hmm. Learning to say no and being okay with it and creating boundaries for myself. And that comes from a true sense of self-worth and self-value, that you are good enough, worthy enough to establish boundaries that you don't allow other people to cross. Mm -hmm. And so for so much of my life, I lived it with this whole idea that if I didn't please other people, then I wouldn't be valued. And that comes, you know, started early. It's probably the reason why I was abused. So there was a vulnerability and a lack of knowingness about my own boundaries, my own personhood that other people could see. And the, the, as you've heard me say many times, Cheryl, the thing that turned me around was reading Gary Zukov's book, the seat of the soul. And mm-hmm. in that book, he talks about the power of intention mm-hmm. and how intention is at one with cause and effect. There is this law that's always operating with us that what you're putting out is coming back. What you're putting out is coming back. It's just like gravity. What is going up is coming down. And that is the third law of motion in physics. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. But what Gary articulated for me around 1989, I think, when I first read that book that I had never understood. That is, before there is the cause, before there is the thing that goes out, the action that goes out, there is the thought to create the action, and behind the thought is a motivation Mm -hmm. or an intention. And that intention, the energy of the intention, the motivation, the why of why you do something, is what is the energy that is going to be returned to you.
1: Mm-hmm. And so
2: when I figured that out, oh, the energy that I'm putting out is, I'm afraid that if I don't do this thing, you are going to be upset with me. And the greatest thing for me was reading that that, that piece on intention and then operating from the point of intention with everything that I did, particularly came when it came to... Um, working with other people or doing something for other people. because I used to be spread so thin I could not there was not room in my life for me. Mm-hmm. There was no room in my life for me.
1: I think that everything you're saying is so true, but let's let's go back there to you read that book and, and it's nineteen eighty nine and the and the light goes off, you're like, this you say to yourself, This is this is true. This is my struggle. And of course, as you know uh, you know, change doesn't happen uh, in, a, in a day, even though it can happen. Your idea of change can happen in a moment. And it sounds like yeah. it did for well, you. Well,
2: you can have the aha, yeah. you can have The aha, like, oh, OK, I see that.
1: But then how did you learn how to say no?
2: Well, I started practicing. I started small. I started I mean, and I think, you know, the first I don't have a small life. So I always say all of my problems show up on the evening news. Everything's magnified. You know, my dream, everybody has the anxiety dream of, you know, things not going well or you being nervous about something or uncertain in your life. My anxiety dream always involves either Walter Cronkite or Stevie Wonder. (laughs) Like I'm on stage and I'm (laughs) I'm singing and I've lost the song and Stevie's looking at me like where, I don't know the words or... (laughs) Walter Cronkite, I'm doing the evening news with Walter Cronkite and my pages are mixed up and are upside down and I can't get them in order. That's my anxiety dream. And um, for me, it was actually a call, a, a real call from the C.B. Wonder, asking me to participate in an event. He was raising money for a child who needed uh, heart, open heart surgery. Mm-hmm. And he was doing a concert and this, this was immediately after I, I thought I had gotten it, Steve. I thought, oh, okay, I got this. Oh, this intention. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I literally asked myself, what would be the intention of me making this donation? Because I made a lot of donations. So how do you – everybody, every day is calling you for something. So how do you decide what you give to and what you don't give to? Mm-hmm. And I asked myself what it would be the reason, the only reason I would make that donation is so that Stevie Wonder would think I was nice.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's it's a big one like though. I, that's a big one, Oprah. I want Stevie Wonder to think I'm nice. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but that would be the only reason. Right. The only reason I'm going to write that check is so Stevie Wonder thinks I'm nice. Yeah. And I said no. Wow. The first big no, I remember. First big no I remember. I said, "I'm sorry and 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 i waited for him to say you nasty person you and, and you know what he said he said okay thanks a lot yeah uh-huh. and onward and onward and i'm like
1: what and, and yeah. what did that feel like i mean in your body like i got like i know that feeling of a powerful no uh, because that would have been something you would have absolutely said yes to you know before, before yeah. right
2: yeah absolutely i had to, it, it actually sat me down you know that feeling of whoa huh. i just did that and the world did not fall apart. And Stevie Wonder did not curse me out. <laughs> he did not say, I can't believe it, and now I'm going to write a song about how bad you are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> My new
0: album, Oprah Sucks. Yeah. Okay. <laughs>
2: yes. And uh, I thought, okay, that was, that was not as bad as I thought. I feel okay. And not only that, I feel, felt powerful doing it.
1: Okay, dear Sugar listeners, we know that we're talking about the art of saying no. So we're going to say no to you just for a little bit. Yes. We're going to end this episode right now, but we're going to be back next week with more from Oprah about how to say no and what no means and the role of no and yes in her own life. So please tune in. Dear Sugars is produced by the New York Times in partnership with WBUR. Our producer is Michelle Siegel. Our executive producer is Lisa Tobin. And our editorial director is Samantha Hennig. We record the show at Talkback Sound and Visual in Portland, Oregon. Our engineer is Josh Millman. Our theme song is by Liz Vice, And other music is by the Portland band called Wonderly.
0: Find us at nytimes.com slash dearsugars. And please, we beg of you, send us your letters at dearsugars at nytimes.com. That's sugars, plural, at nytimes.com.